bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host here again with my co-host, a man of many skills, as we've learned in, in the previous podcast, Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello, Yoda. Yes, this is <laughs> going to be an interesting podcast. Looking forward to this a lot. Yeah, today's it's a different one because we don't have a guest on today, but we do have questions that uh, our audience have been sending in, and so we're going to take those on one at a time, which is always fun because we always like uh, invoking questions from the world because we speak to a worldwide audience, so we're looking forward to taking those on. But before we do, Adam, this is Movember. Right? Yes. Yes. And we encourage everybody, all of our listeners around the world to support your local Fundraisers for cancer research. Both Adam and I right now currently have been affected by that, not uh, personally like ourselves, but loved ones. In my case, I lost my wife to cancer a couple of years ago, and I now have a brother that's uh, fighting cancer. So it hits us uh, personally. Adam, you also have a story to tell as well, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. My wife beat cancer 12 years ago, and now she's having another struggle with it. Uh, so far, so good. We are fighting the good fight, and things are looking okay. But it is pretty scary stuff, right? So my advice to anyone out there, if you think there is something wrong, please go and see a doctor and please support a cancer charity. You know, it's, uh, I think for baby boomers like us, there is a sort of one in three chance of cancer hitting you. That's a pretty, pretty high probability, right? So, and just for international listeners sort of outside of North America, Movember is a Canadian thing, I think. I'm not even sure if it's an American thing. Yeah, I don't know. In November, people grow, men, I guess, grow mustaches 
for cancer. So if your wife hates a moustache, it's a good chance to uh, get one grown in <laughs> and look like a 70s porn star, which is what I do like when I have a moustache. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then you shave it off at the end of the month and you get sponsored for growing your moustache and people effectively pay you to shave it off at the end of the month. And yeah. cancer research gets the money. So that is a good call. So if anyone is into that, please, please grow that moustache and get that money donated to a cancer research fund. Yeah, you bet. And certainly our hearts go out to those that uh, have the battle of their own and those family members that are supporting them. We both know that it's uh, it's tough. We're there with you. And uh, just, uh, yeah, you know, put on a strong face. I know in both our cases, humor has helped us come through our family struggles yeah. uh, with, with this disease and uh, would encourage everybody else to try to... You know, it's just one of those things about life and trying to have some fun with it makes it uh, a little bit more bearable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so so that's our public service announcement. And and again, we both encourage everybody to participate. So we got some questions, Adam. Yes, indeed. So we have 10 questions to go through. We've picked 10 out of all come in and we're just going to read them one by one and try and answer them. And remember, this is from our personal perspective. So I'll kick off with question number one. This comes from Lee Smith and he says, it seems that every organization within the built environment has a different interpretation of what commissioning is and how it should be implemented. Do you think there is a case for unification of commissioning standards? Also, from your experience, which commission standards do you believe are the most effective? Well, there is a wide open question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are the the commissioning expert, so I'm going to let you finish answering that question. I'm going to put my two cents in first, and that is, is that, you know, Adam, when... Like when I think about our projects, the ones that you know when we were practicing and had our engineering practice up and running, and and uh, the commissioning process was all about validating in the field the math that we calculated in our offices, and it was to make sure that the flows and the pressures and the temperatures were as per our design. And to get that in the field is not an easy task because you know you have the interpretation of the engineering science. You've got the installation by the mechanical contractors who are, you know, using the equipment that you've specified and in many cases have tried to swap out stuff. And you know and I know that one of the things that drives engineers crazy, and it happened to me lots of times where we would specify something, go to a job site and there'd be some other piece of equipment there, you know, because it was more yeah. uh, it was more cost effective, right? And you know, and this like you know, you and I have talked about this before and design process. So you you go and you do all the load calculations, you convert everything into a flow, you do the pressure drop calculations, you specify the balancing systems, which are pressure dependent or independent depending on the valves that you're using, but there's a pressure calculation. And when we get out to the field to make sure that we're actually seeing the flow and that differential pressure, that ties back to our calculations. Well, if somebody swaps out a valve for <laughs> one that we specify, maybe it's got a different CV. It's not, it's just not a valve and a cost issue. You could have thousands of valves on a job site. If they've completely changed the CVs, it just completely messes with the design and the commissioning process goes to hell in a handbag because now where do you start, right? So, and we've seen that with pumps and we've seen it with tanks and we've seen it with instrumentation and we see it with drive control. You know, it's just, it's a, it can be a real headache. So commissioning is not an easy task. It becomes easier when everybody in the chain of dominoes does as they're supposed to do. 
but in practice that really happens. So I, you know, my, I'm, I'm not a commissioning expert. All I know is when I go to a job site, I want to damn well see the numbers that we've used in our office. So I'll leave that rest of it up to you, my okay. friend. <laughs> well, thank you very much for calling me an expert. My mum would be very proud of that. <laughs> but um, the problem, what you just touched on there is so true. I mean, the basic fundamental problem, I worked in 20 on projects in 21 countries and it's the same everywhere. The whole system is optimized to reward legitimate and illegitimate corner cutting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I let's take a, a cooling coil control valve, right? You specify the VW Porsche valve, they wind up with the Skoda valve on there, right? <laughs> and that then someone's going to stick that in line size and not do the authority calculation on that. And then mm-hmm. the performance of that coil is just completely shot. And then the efficiency of that coil shot and then the the running cost of that building changes, right? And that's just one little component. Yeah. So, you know, just, so back to the system is what the system is, right? So you're going to have clients that demand quality and use commissioning and commissioning management as a way of enforcing that. They do well. Others do not. So to Lee's question, you know, two parts. Do you think there is a case for unification of commissioning standards? 100% yes. Every room I go in and do a talk or a presentation, if there's 100 people in there, there's 100 different interpretations of what commissioning is. And I always bring it back to a three-word definition, trust but verify. I trust the designers to design it. I trust the contractor to put it in. And then I verify that, right? If it was good enough for Ronald Reagan and Gail Bichoff, it's good enough for me. (laughs) So that really is the essence. And that definition I like because it crosses cultural boundaries and people get it. Now, the problem with commissioning is last time I checked in the US alone, there are 16 different certifications and qualifications for commissioning. It's bloody chaos. So the market and clients really are correct to be confused because what's the PNG or the CNG or the PE of commissioning? There needs to be one unified qualification. So to answer Lee's question directly, yes, standards and qualifications, I believe, need to be unified. And that needs to be done by a big dog like Ashray or Sibsi. Quite frankly, yeah. you know the, the organizations below them are great and they do good work, but they're not powerful on their own unless they come together to do it. I would love to see the commissioning organizations merge together to make one standard. Here, here. I'm, I'm, yes. Where's my gavel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here, here, here. <laughs> So the interpretation, so going on to Lee's other question. Uh, well, but, but hang on a second. Yeah. Don't go on. Well, hang on. Going back to your, your comment about unification and bringing together these organizations and, uh, you know, a single standard. So there is, there is already an example of that. So Ashray, Sipsi, Riva, Ishray, which is the Indian uh, arm of Ashray, I believe there's an Asian organization. Anyways, these groups have come together and have created a, an international indoor environmental quality association or, right. or a group. group. Uh, yeah, I can't remember how they, how they worded it. I should know this. I actually sat in some of the meetings. But what was interesting is that this took a series of meetings within these groups, five or six of the key ones. They set up a contract amongst themselves uh, how they're going to operate. But one of the messages there is that Indoor environmental quality has no boundaries, right? Yeah. And it, it applies everywhere. And, you know, human beings, 
physiologically and physically, for the most part, it doesn't matter where you're in South Korea or you're going into the Nordic countries or wherever in the world, we all have similar physical systems, physiological systems. And so the indoor environment in buildings applies everywhere. And these groups coming together to form this cohesive group is a model. So, okay, we're talking about people, but when it comes to commissioning, building systems are the same thing. I mean, it's it's science, right? It's yep. it's fluids and air and water. Those are both fluids. It's pressure. It's temperature. There's a way to control it. There's a way that heat transfer. That heat transfer is universal. It doesn't matter where the hell no, you yeah, are. Absolutely. It's universal, right? Yeah. So there should be no reason why. All of these worldwide organizations that deal with commissioning standards and protocols can't come together and deal and come up with a single document that everybody can use. And I go back again, I'm on a rand, rambling because this stuff gets me going. As, remember, we had Jerry Udelson on and he talked about the number of building programs. Oh, yeah. And, and it was some stupid number 600 remember, plus green building yeah, certifications in the world. Right. How the hell do you, you know, like, there's no cohesiveness there, right? Like, no. if, and so there's a problem. And that, what that, and the problem is, is it creates paralysis through analysis. There's so yes. many programs out there. Which one do you pick? And so I'm with you. I, yeah. End of rant. End of rant, okay. Adam. <laughs> so to unify the standards, you know, just as a start in America, there's three sort of major commission organizations BCA, NEB, and ACG, you know, just bringing them together. Right. With ASHRAE would be a great start. But, you know, that's there's politics there for sure. But I'd love to do that. I'd love to be the catalyst for that. But the other thing that part of this question is, you know, also from your experience, which commissioning standards do you believe are most effective? Well, I've been going through the standards recently because I've gone working on a couple of book projects and they are very unhelpful. <laughs> so since mm-hmm. they do commissioning codes, ASHRAE do standards, everyone has their own procedural standards, and they all differ and they all seem to be out of date. None of them talk about integration and systems testing. Mm. There's no Mm -hmm. systems holistic approach. High-end clients who need mission-critical systems and buildings like data centers, they talk about integrated systems testing. That's not mentioned in any commissioning standard I've reviewed recently, Mm. not once. So, you know, the standards need updating. They're just awfully out of date. So, yeah, so I don't want to get too negative here, but the whole industry is ripe for disruption and reinvention and for consolidation. And, yeah, I'd love to be the agent of that, but there's a lot of politics there. Because one of the big problems is a lot of these are done by volunteers who are trying to hold down jobs, bring up families and run companies, and it's difficult. Maybe it needs to be a paid position. This is why a big dog like Ashray or Sibsi who have paid staff involved would be a way to go. Yeah. But anyway, it's uh, well, and the board also, is messy, right? <laughs> it is messy. And a lot of these organizations, of course, are sustained through membership, right? So anytime they even think about merging, then, of course, then there becomes the question about membership and funding and all of that type of stuff. So, And that's the political side of the business that just prevents us from moving forward, isn't it? I mean, it's it's like if you could, if you could remove all of the, the landmines, like funding <laughs> for organization, yeah. right? And just say, okay, well, what what do we actually want here, right? And what we want is we want standardization that applies anywhere in the world. Well, then you're going to have to sacrifice. There has to be sacrifices. And well, everybody's yeah. got to give something up to make that happen, right? Yeah. So, but but if you did it, you know, twenty years from now, let's just say that's because something like this takes a long time, right? It yeah. Could take ten years to to unify a commissioning standard around the world, maybe even longer, right? Yeah. But let's just go for ten years. 
Well, and then so, and then, then it's going to take another ten years to actually implement it, so that you get every country that's you know that's buying into this on board. So twenty years from now, because you're always talking, the continuum on getting stuff like this is long, right? So twenty years from now, you look back and say, okay, we went through hell, you know, we pissed a bunch of people off, but now look what's going on around the world. We have commissioning agents from all over communicating about systems and and that information gets back to the engineering and architectural yeah. community it gets back to clients and now we start talking together as a group as opposed to you know our own little battles you know in our own little jurisdiction right there's a lot of power in unification right i'm with you so um, you t- you want to lead the charge adam i'll be right there with you right, so i've got two little stories one little story and one bit of optimism to round this question out so the story was many years ago about five years ago this was now I was on the board of the Building Commission Association in the US, and at that time, there was a little announcement within the industry that NEB were going to merge with ASHRAE and create like the commissioning standard and the commissioning mm-hmm. qualification. And BCA and ABC and ACG lost their minds at that because the minute that happened, if it had happened, their other organisations would have had two choices: become irrelevant or join. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was lots of political behind the scenes shenanigans and it didn't happen because there was lots of objections to it. So that's a taste of what it would take, right? You've got to get all of them to do it at the same time. But let's look at the optimistic side. So I started work in 1980. Yes, I am old. And (laughs) I was in the UK then and that was at the time when the UK made the firm decision to move from imperial to metric, right? So everyone I worked with who was training me worked in imperial. And they were going, oh, this metric, nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. And then when I was at technical college, one day the professor came and he said, I'm telling you now, we're doing metric. And if anybody puts anything imperial on any paper, I will fail you with an F. Done. <laughs> right? So, I love it. you know what? Within one generation, the UK went metric. Yeah. So it's possible, right? It yeah. is doable. Yeah. Come on, America. Get on the train. <laughs> Get on board. I mean <laughs> – this is a okay. Look, so for my art, you and I both have American friends, right? We have oh, a lot sure. of yeah. we have like a lot American, American kids. <laughs> that's that's right, right? Okay, so everybody in the U.S. understands what a nine millimeter Glock is. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. If you want to talk about kilos of drugs, yeah, <laughs> right. Kilo of cocaine, right? Yeah. I mean, it's in the newspapers. It's in the publications. The, the politicians use it. I mean, there are applications for metric that's used all the time in the U.S. Yep. Talk about engines, right? How many liters of it, you know, is your engine, oh. right? It's right. So I don't know. You know, the, they can the, they can do it. It's, the U.S. Corps of Engineers uh, Middle East Division they work in metric because yeah. they have to, right? The U.S. military work in metric because they have to. <laughs> There's only two countries in the world that don't work in metric. That's Myanmar, Burma, and the USA. God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so come on, you guys. Come on, get guys. The, get, There's get no shame up. in just getting on that train. Everything divisible by 10. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. So, okay. so let's so go on so to question two. Because we? <laughs> we could go off on that yeah. tangent. <laughs> this is why, this, see, Adam, this is why you and I have a lot of fun together. Because, you know, this whole podcast got started in a bar somewhere. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, this is just a continuation of our discussion here. We are a few years yeah. later, right? So, <laughs> okay, question <laughs> question number two comes from Barry Wormald. Sorry, Barry. 
Okay, why do you think there has been no improvement in efficiency in construction in the last 50 years? That's a great question. Whereas manufacturing has improved significantly. See, those two messages right there we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Says, he says, I find some of the issues faced 40 years ago are, in fact, worse now, than not better. I agree with that. Spoke to a guy involved in car manufacturing a few years ago and told me their average shelf time for components for a new car was less than a day compared with three months a few years ago. Well, we, let's talk about that, too. The construction industry has a long time to go if it ever gets near to this. Whoa, that's big a subject, big, man. big subject. Yeah. So you want to take a crack at that one too? Yeah, sure. So when I was doing my master's, there was a long ongoing over a year discussion about why are cars cheap and efficient and awesome and why do buildings suck? <laughs> mm. And the professor basically said that his, his viewpoint was buildings should be built like cars. Right, and he, yeah. and then everyone goes, oh, buildings—they're just—they're all bespoke. Everything's different. True, right? But every building has light fittings, has doors hung on them, has carpet put down. That could be processed and and scaled, right? So he gave no pass to the construction industry for their um, fact that they're manufacturing a unique product because he said when you break it down below that level, it can all be productized and systemized. So I agree with that, hundred percent. I think. What goes on in construction, there is a total misalignment of incentives. The incentive, there's an incentive to cut corners and keep costs down because that's what clients want. And there's no consequences or very, very few consequences for getting caught doing something bad, wrong, or indifferent, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, if you're going back to the original, if some original example of the control valve, someone changes that control valve from the Porsche to the Skoda, there's no money going back to the client. There's no consequences for long-term inefficiencies that that creates, right? No yep. one no one gets sued. No one goes to prison. No one gets de-licensed. So, you know, when was the last time you saw a professional engineer lose his license? That guy has to be selling cocaine and killing people before that happens, right? No. <laughs> or gal. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll let you take that thread. <laughs> So I, I know here in, in Alberta, Pego, um, and again, I'm, a reti- I'm retired now, so I don't, yeah. I'm not a member anymore, but we used to get the, the newsletters. And going on to Pega, they actually took engineers to task, and they would publish when one of the engineers was a bad boy or bad girl and how they lost their license. And they would publicize the court documents. They would you know give you sort of a summary of what happened. And, and there are professionals in all areas. I'm not just talking about engineers, lawyers, doctors, physicians, everybody – there's always bad apples somewhere, right? Anyways, that's not, you know, so let's get back onto this question of efficiency. I got to take, I, hang on, Adam. I got to take a deep breath here because this whole area pisses me off. <laughs> oh, Serenity <okay>. now. <laughs> I think it was Upton, what was his last name? So the, the, I can't quite remember the words of the quote, but it's something along these lines that that when a person is paid, to not understand. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, Sinclair, Upton, Upton, Sinclair, something like that. Something about something on the lines, you know, that's say construction, right? Because that's what we're yeah. talking about. People are paid to do their job and not to understand how other processes actually m- can make their job better yeah. or obsolete, right? Yeah. And so any any discussion about standardization and pre-manufactured and modular construction, 
if that's a threat to your occupation, you don't want to have anything to do with it. And we have rewarded the construction industry in such a way that whenever any of these subjects come up, modularization, for example, mm. or, or pre-manufactured systems, it's like, get it out of my radar screen. It's a non-starter. Don't want to talk about it. My job is to do as I've been doing, and I'll be doing that forever. And the construction industry, by far, is so far behind, as this gentleman points out, in terms of manufacturing. It's a manufactured product, for God's sakes. That's what a house or a building is. It's a manufactured product. Any other manufacturing, and this is not shipbuilding. You can build a ship faster than you can build a house. You know, like, the, like these ship manufacturers, right? They're putting together these great big boats, right? Yeah. In less time than people are taking to build houses. They're more sophisticated. They're more complicated. The engineering is like way beyond the engineering that's required oh, yeah. for building, right? And yet they can do it in under a year. Like you can't tell me that the housing industry or the building industry can't adopt some of these processes. You but, know why though, right? You know why that works? Because there's consequences. Absolutely. To being bad yeah. at shipbuilding, right? There's some severe consequences. Like, you know, governments will take you out if you build them bad ships. <laughs> right. So I don't. I just came back from Ottawa. I did a lecture there. Uh, it was a closing keynote for the uh, Canadian Hydronics Council. And <laughs> so what happened? And I don't, I don't mind sharing this story. 20 years ago, they hired me. They said, Robert, what's going to happen in 20 years? So this is going back 2004. 20, 2004, I think yeah. it was. They hired me and said, Robert, put on your, you know, your rose-colored glasses and look into your crystal wall, and you tell us what you think is going to happen in 20 years. Well, here's the danger of making predictions. They might come true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then what happens is then you become an expert, right? And so that's always a dangerous thing. Yeah. So it just so happens that 98% of the shit that I talked about came true, and the other 2%, Adam, it's just yeah. a matter of time. It'll come true, too. <laughs> so, yeah. So they said, okay, well, all right, you come back, you come back in 2019 to Ottawa and you tell us what's going to happen. And so I took on this whole concept of efficiency and in, actually the inefficiencies of stick building stuff on site. Yeah. And I gave two, I gave two examples or several examples, but I looked at the automobile industry and I looked at the agricultural industry, right? So if you go back to John Deere, for example, and you go back into the late 1800s, right? And then building tractors. And then that same time frame, look at Henry Ford, right? And the Model T. If you look at the automobile industry today and the agricultural industry today, yeah. right? They're both producing self-driven vehicles, yeah. right? Their equipment is manufactured at an incredibly high level of efficiency. And people that are listening to this online, keep in mind that a combine and a car are nothing more than mobile HVAC systems. They're environmentally controlled yep. spaces, right, that people occupy. Well, now they're making them so you don't even have to occupy them, right? I mean, look at a combine. I mean, the farmers of today or tomorrow, you know, don't even sit in the thing. But that's aside from that. These vehicles are nothing more than just enclosures that are conditioned. Well, you can't tell me that we can't build a house or an office building that has the same or better in indoor environmental conditions and that we can't do it at a factory level. Like, it's insane, you know? And so one of the things that, you know, going back to Henry Ford, I mean, it's almost a, it's almost a cliche, right? Because he, he did it so well. 
But between the time they first started producing that car to the time they finally put an end to that car, the cost of the car became less in real dollars, right? It didn't get more money. It became less money because they built something like 19 million of these damn things. And over the, over the time frame, they got it figured out, you know, that you can make this stuff and you can make it well and you can repeat it. And that's the message, you know, that the industry needs to understand. And also, that I, I think there's a lot of political support for the status quo because the construction industry typically, say, in Canada or America, is 10% of the economy. So if you're a politician, you don't want them jobs to go away. Right. And so, <laughs> okay, now, now I'm going to have to get on another soapbox, right? <laughs> so, you know, like, where's my gavel? <laughs> okay, listen up, folks. Order, order. <laughs> order, order, order. One of the biggest complaints that we hear is affordable housing. Yeah. Right? You hear it all the time. You know, people, because I get up there talking about indoor environmental quality and building above code, you know, building to yeah. standards or better than standards. And people go, oh, that'll never happen because it's going to cost a whole bunch of more money. And we have a hard time putting people in houses. We need affordable housing and damn the standards, you know, for indoor environmental quality. And I'm looking at these people and I'm going, are you freaking kidding me? I said, the reason why housing is so expensive is because you're using outdated, antiquated methods that go back hundreds of years. Look at other, look at the car industry. For God's sakes, you can buy a brand new vehicle with like a 10-year warranty on it for under $25,000. Like, give me a break, right? It's not that affordable housing can't be done. It can be done, and it can be done with great indoor environments and energy efficiency, but you have to get off that old status quo, the dogma that we've got to stick build shit on site. That's got to end. Yeah, Sorry. Well, I, I think oof, it's uh, – oof. Oof. yeah, are you okay? I think, I'll send you a Xanax in the mail tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I'm going to need it. Just send a couple. But huh. um, okay. I, the pro- to, going back to episode 21 of the podcast, we interviewed Steve Burrows, and his thing – he was a great interview, actually. I found that very mm. inspiring. He got yeah. me very pumped up. But his, his thing was most of the construction has to come because the cost to construct is so prohibitive now. Right. Yeah. So he's right there. Now I think that it has to be client led. So from a commercial point of view, unless clients demand high quality and enforce it and and then lay down some really bad consequences if you screw up, that's what's going to drive change. They got to demand it, but they got to demand it and mean it. I.e., they got to follow through and check things, maybe validate things, and then they've got to lay down some really bad consequences if they don't get what they've asked for. Because they never yeah. get what they've asked for, ever. No. You know, there, there's the, it goes back to proactive, reactive, right? The yeah. building industry is so reactive yeah. and rather than proactive. So I was on a meeting, uh, again, with some clients of mine down in Minneapolis, and we had a great discussion. And one of the people at the meeting, we were talking about, this was a meeting on residential construction, and we were talking about disposable income or income that's available for housing and how now, more than ever before, it's very difficult for the upcoming generations to buy a house yeah. because their available money is so reduced relative to previous years. Yeah. You know, like you look, you look at our generation and the generation before us, there was nothing to buy a house, right? Yeah. We had salaries and the cost of living and inflation was such that it allowed us to pay off the mortgages, right? Yeah. That's not the case today. Right. And so the statement about affordable housing is valid. There's no, I'm not arguing that at all, but 
the challenge about affordability and incomes, it goes back to this efficiency in construction. Yeah. As long as it there you go. Yeah. As long as we're building inefficiently, there's a cost component in there that penalizes the generation coming up and those generations before them are coming up, they won't be able to afford it. And so we're actually, it's our fault. It's our industries. We're to blame for people not being able to afford our stuff. And the reason why they can't afford our shit is because that industry has not followed suit like other manufacturing industry to make things more efficient. We build inefficiently. There's a cost penalty to the purchaser. And until we resolve that, housing will never be affordable for that next generation. Well, that's one aspect. I think uh, millennials are going to fix this. So houses are built shittily and builds are built shittily because they have high value because their prices have been bid up. The yeah. future, I millennials are renters, not necessarily owners for various reasons. Yeah. Many reasons, right? They're going to crash the market. I personally believe when my kids are my age, the thought of buying a property that goes up in value will be a joke. It will just be unfathomable to them, right? Yeah. Because the future is demographically in the West, depopulation. The future is Japan. The future is Italy. In Italy and Japan, the housing markets are just crashed. They're giving away houses in some parts of Italy. If you go there and commit to stay there, they will give yeah. you a house. Mm. Now, it's not going to get that bad here, but I think the market will slowly crash. I believe it's starting to happen already. And when that happens, efficiencies will be forced into the system, right? Because you won't be able to realize, you know, a gain from your house and builders will have to build them with quality in mind. So, you know, that's where I think it's going <laughs> over a longer yeah, term. And even if you think, let's just put on our business hats here for a second yeah. and talk about, you know, margins and profitability yeah. for these builders, right? So if they don't, let's just say, for example, that, you know, it's 80% of the industry stays with the status quo, the dogma that we stick build shit on site, right? Yeah. And then so so that, let's just say that that engine keeps running, but yeah. around that is the demographic engines and real afford, yeah. and real incomes, and they can't afford to buy the stuff of that real engine. So what happens to those people playing in that game is that they get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed till ultimately yep. there's a high-risk industry with no profitability. You're going to see mass business failures. How can, it can, there's no other choice, right? Yep. And so then what ends up happening is you've got, you've got inventory of buildings that haven't been finished. People have put down payments. on. Like, it can get really ugly quick. Oh, it can. You know, the, this is the, you're going to see uh, Schumpeter thing, who's a famous Austrian economist, creative destruction, right? Yeah. The right. weak will perish and the strong will rise up. And that will happen in business and in the property cycle. I truly believe that. I, my kids fascinate me because <laughs> yeah. they are in their mid-20s and they are not interested in buying cars or houses. If you're slinging BMWs or new houses, you're in trouble in the next mm. five to ten years because they're not all like my kids, but they represent their generation, right? Yeah. And I love – yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. Go. <laughs> <laughs> this is, well, hey, listeners, this is Adams and our conversations. We just yeah. it, we just get going here. We riff. So, <laughs> so all right. So, uh, where the hell was I? I was in I was down in Ashray. I think it was Kansas City, and I'm there. I'm there with uh, clients of mine and Upra. They're guys that that uh, finance some of my education stuff, right? Good right. partners of ours. And anyway, so we're down there and. We're, we got to go for dinner that night. So we don't take an Uber anymore or a taxi cab. We get on a scooter. Yep. You know, we rent scooters, right? And we, and we, so we drive on the scooters on the sidewalk, on the road, whatever. It was a blast, right, to get there. So then I'm coming back to Calgary and I'm going, when's, when are scooters going to show up? Adam, no kidding. Within two weeks, 
the whole city's like populated, everyone driving scooters. And yep. it's and so and I love I love riding the scooters. I'm an old guy, right? I'm 58 years old. I'll get on a scooter, no problem, right? Damn right. <laughs> but if you look at the demographics, like in downtown Calgary, I think the medium I think the medium age in downtown Calgary is something like 38 to 40 years of age. Everybody riding scooters. The bikes, you know, like the rental bikes, not so much. But yeah. get on the scooters. The young kids, the younger generations, they love the scooters, right? So it's no longer Uber or taxi cabs or whatever. If you make it fun, affordable, they don't have to own it. There's no payment on it. They rent it by the hour, whatever it is. You're right. That's that's where it's going. Well, this is why I'm optimistic about the future, because I think the younger generation will not put up with the BS that our generation put up with. They will change things. They will move things along. That's the beauty of you know, generational handing over to another generation, handing over to another generation. They will fix some of our errors, I think. Yeah, you know, we could easily start to create a whole bunch of controversy here. Let's, should we talk about Greta? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she needs to go and do her homework. <laughs> so, I got two two thoughts on that. She's either a low information advocate. She's she's genuine for sure. But what I've come to realize is, and I'm probably one of them as well. Most people, ninety percent of people, are what are called low information advocates. So they want to signal that they're on the right train in the right tribe, but they're doing it on low information. For example, electric mm. cars. Love them. I'd love a Tesla. It's an iPad with wheels, right? Awesome. Yeah. But, you know, environmentally, there is an argument that that is probably twice as worse as a petrol car. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So there's – so this is why we, we can get into some really good yeah. discussions here, right? So, like, talk – so, yeah, so Greta, right? Bless her heart, you know? Yeah. But – I'm going to go in defense of her. And here's why. For every person over the age of 50 that has been slamming her, how many of you SOBs, you know, when you were 13, because she's 16 now, but when yeah. you were 13, had a vision for something and you got so passionate about it that you could actually get the world's attention. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you, you, these, you know, and I, there's people I know, I love dearly, you know, that want to slam Greta. Right. And, and Al, hey, okay, I'm in Alberta, right? This is an oil patch of the world. One of the oil patches of the world here, right? <laughs> Greta comes to town. Of course, everybody starts to slam her, right? Like yeah. you, you know, you're ignorant, you're innocent, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. For God's sakes, she was, how, <laughs> like, she has grabbed the world's attention. Yeah. No, she's, uh, from a PR point of view, she's awesome. And right. she's high integrity and her message is right. Most people who disagree with her would, if you moved up one level in the system, you would both agree that, you know, we should maybe not chuck so much shit in the sea. Maybe we should use a bit less fossil fuel. So, you know, what they're disagreeing on is the detail, but I think most people agree on the principles, but people aren't willing to do what's necessary to take the next step. So everyone, you know, you get your passive house. If you're a rich dude, you get your passive house, you get your Tesla. So outwardly, you're saying, yeah, I'm good. I'm hip. I'm, I'm doing yeah. my bit. But you're not. Yeah. You know. So what so one of things, and so I'm, I'm actually going to stand up when I say this. <laughs> <laughs> so for the, the people that are slamming Greta, yeah. right? You are the status quo. You are the dogma of society. Now, yeah. okay, and, and I put myself in there too until she came along, right? Well, not really, because I've always sort of tried pushing the pendant the other way. But that young lady, one voice, has pushed the pendulum to a place where people are talking about it. Yep. You can't, 
Okay, if you're educated and you live in the free world and you support capitalism and you support free speech and all of that, and you can't find the beauty and what she represents, she represents a young voice with a passion who's pushed the pendulum the other way and she's got people talking about stuff, whether you like it or not, she's done that. And you know what? Kudos to her, right? Oh, yeah. We see needs a round of applause, even by the naysayers. So, all right, I don't know how we got. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, move on. But just uh, I, I pers- my personal view of Greta is that she might be the Martin Luther King of her movement, right? In that she's got the attention, she's got the platform, she's using the platform, but her message is upsets the status quo so much she gets lots of hate, right? That's the, that's the yeah. Martin Luther King journey. Hopefully she doesn't have the same outcome as him, God forbid. But, you know, it's that level of stuff. What you're seeing here is a paradigm shift, to use a trendy, horrible, trendy word, but there is a paradigm shift and it's a generational shift and it's slow, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm standing up again, Adam. I got got some more words for these people that have been slamming her. Okay, all right. So, so, okay, this this is when you start to look at your internally your own life and say, okay, if if I've got a 13-year-old right? Who's going to be 16 years old in three years, yeah. right? And she's got this vision or this passion for her. And, you know, we're looking and we're looking and saying, well, she, she has a worldwide following, right? Are we going to tell her to sit down and shut up? Or are we going to be proud of her, right? Yeah. Like for your own kids, I think about your own kids, right? So if you've got a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old who is so passionate and so driven and can garner the world's attention, you're going to tell that kid to sit down and shut up? Nah. You know, like you would be, you would just say, I would be, I would, like no matter what her story was, as long as she's not a future Hitler or Mussolini, yeah. <laughs> right? Like I'd be, you know, like, you know, as long as she's still got angel wings on and that's 16 or 13 or 14, you're still got some innocence in you, right? You're like, you oh, yeah. Done, yeah. You haven't like started to smoke drugs or do alcohol or do, you know, other kinds of stuff. There's still some innocence in you, right? And she's mad she's, you know, like you'd be just, you'd be like looking at her or him and going, I am so proud of you that you've managed to make the world aware of something that, you know, maybe not everybody agrees with you, but look at what you've done. Oh, yeah. Like good She's, on you, you know? Yeah, no, no. If you're a parent, there's, there's, there's all good things there, right? Yeah. So shut the F up, those people who are slamming her. If you got kids and she was like that, you would, you would damn well be proud of her. Sorry. <laughs> well, you know what the answer is to all those people? Be better than her if you're that good. Yeah, exactly. You go out and you get the world's attention for your cause. You want yeah. to keep using, you want to keep firing up natural gas at uh, 1700 degrees C when you only need 90 de- or 30 degrees Celsius to heat a place. You want to get on that bandwagon and tell the world that that's good. You go right ahead. Do it. You know, sh- the world's a free market, just like she found out, right? She, right? Whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm down. All right, so let's go to question three. Uh, this might be a little bit outside of our, of our um, domain of expertise, but that won't stop us having an opinion, I'm sure. Yeah. Right, so from Mike Baker, he says, can you discuss how net zero buildings could cripple the national grid and why GEBs are, far, are a far better solution? So GEBs are grid interactive effective buildings. Now, Efficient. Yeah, if, efficient buildings, yeah, sorry. So what my understanding of this is, so there's a thing called the duckback phenomenon. So when you get all this solar power come online and then when the sun goes down, so for the power grid, they like stable demand, right? So then all of a sudden now we've got lots of solar power panels, say in California, during the day you get this massive 
dip in demand on the main electrical grid. And then at the evening, you get this surge when the sun goes down of power demand. And the grid has trouble dealing with those extreme peaks and troughs. So that's my understanding of that. How is that? Mm. Is that your yeah. understanding? I think that's what Mike is talking about. And for yeah. those that, uh, that don't, you should actually follow Mike. He's a pretty cool dude. He's, yes. um, I think he's out of South Africa. I think is where he's located. He's really involved with uh, building modeling. The guy knows his stuff. Yeah. It's a good question. So, but we actually had, and uh, forgive me because I can't remember the gentleman's name. I think you and I both own stocks in this company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, we were talking about integrated in, internet of things and, you know, monitoring the transactions between, you know, buildings that become their own power systems. Right. So let me yeah. try and start this conversation again. So, and you know, the guy, and I, and it's going to come to me in a second here. So, his concept was is that every building in of itself should be a source of energy. Yeah. Rather than a consumer of energy, it's a producer of energy. And every and it's all integrated and, and locked together. And every one of these buildings could be batteries, right? We can store stuff. We also had Bjarni Olson on past ASHRAE yeah. president, and they were talking about the same issues that, you know, that I mean these issues exist all over the world. But what they're doing is that they're Use the storing this energy in the form of water storage tanks. So yep. when they have peak production and it's not being used, they put it into water. Well, wow! You know everybody uses hot water, yep. <laughs> washing uh, anything that's hygienic, radiant whatever. heating, radiant heating, yeah, right, exactly, radiant cooling on the cooling side, but on uh, for chilled water. But, we're not, but electric, so you got electric production. Run the chillers, stored in ice systems, stored in water. So you go chilled water for for conditioning, right? Yeah. Electric systems for heating the water, right? Put it in the tanks, right? Use it for domestic purposes later on. So there is a way to to deal with it. I think the integrated systems, the integrated buildings, these energy systems have a lot. There's a lot there for the future, and I think Mike Mike brings up some good points. I think if we we should get Mike on, you know that. Yeah, I was thinking, let's stop that one there because I, as you were saying that, I'm thinking he would be a great guest because this is some, this is a future thing, right? Whatever, whether you agree or don't agree with Greta, these things are coming down the pipe, right? So net zero buildings, there's a real movement. I mean, the lead thing seems to be going away and net zero seems to be the next shiny thing. And I think net zero buildings in the next five years is going to be a very big conversation industry-wide. I, I agree with you. And, uh, and we have a lot to learn about. Well, and then even Lloyd Alter, we had Lloyd Alter on. Yeah. He talked about, uh, well, you both you and had you both had a good discussion about, you know, people that have the money to buy the Tesla systems, yeah. the power packs, the car, the solar collectors, and the net zero energy on a per building basis, and how that really doesn't serve society, right? That, that no. we need something much bigger and more integrated, more holistic than that if we want to make. You know, if you want to make some progress here. Yeah, and we I need scale. That. We need scale. I mean, Lloyd's basic thing was just use less, do less, take it easy, right? And that's a good <laughs> yeah. message. I it mean, is obviously, really... he's an old hippie, and kudos to that as well. <laughs> I love, I love Lloyd. You yeah. know, and what, what, well, what's great about Lloyd is he, he's not afraid to take on issues. Yeah. And, and he does it, and he does. Paul Gezi. Yes, Paul Gezi. He's another Paul. one who's at the forefront of what's going on with control energy. Yeah, controlled energy, and that, and and I, I, Paul, I apologize there for having a brain fart, but you know we, that was a great interview because he talked about 
somewhat what Mike is talking about now. Yes. I mean, that's, he's got a solution for that. Yes. And Lloyd, of course, would support that. You know, so I think it. I think if we had, if we actually got everybody on that we've interviewed to date and talked about these issues, and we and I have actually talked about doing that in a conference, right? And maybe we should do that. Maybe we should do that. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. Now, the next question is a great one for you. Let's let's go there. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so this is from Matt. Yeah, Matt Nelson. Matt Nelson, and both you and I have been interviewed by Matt on yes. his podcast. And so I would encourage everybody, Matt's got a good podcast on as well. He's had some great guests on, you and I. Yeah, <laughs> That's not blowing our own <laughs> what else? Yeah, what else are we What else are we going to say? I mean, <laughs> sorry. Usually Adam and I are more humble and more have more humility than that. But we're plugging Matt's podcast. Yeah. He's, a, he's a good guy. So he says, all right, how about what are two to three areas where engineers stop short during the design process that keep their designs average instead of excellent? That's a great question. Yeah. That's a great question. As a design engineer, I I expect you to have a top answer for this. (laughs) (laughs) All I know is that I can look at just about any design – that has fallen short of achieving great things. And it's usually an optimization process. And it's, it all comes down to time again. You know, the difference between doing a good design and a great design oftentimes comes down to another 20, 30 hours of work that's not in the fee. And, and I'll give you an example of that, Matt. And for those that are listening, in terms of optimization, I actually wrote about this in an article for HPAC magazine, and it was and it was about coil sizing, right? And if and the impact of log mean temperature differences on return temperatures. So now we're gonna get into some science shit here. But this is a podcast about property development, and within property development, there's engineering, and engineering requires math and heat transfer stuff, no right? Way just that. Way, <laughs> don't hit around that. It's just the way it is, folks. Okay, so yeah. you know you got you have, and we see this right where. Chillers and heat pumps and boilers are specified, and the temperatures coming back through these machines does not extract or does not enable that equipment to achieve its rated performance, right? So even, you know, so let's just take, for example, a condensing boiler. It gets specified. It has a potential of, you know, hitting, say, 96 97% efficiency. But what oftentimes people don't understand, and even engineers that are aware of it, They'll size or they'll design the fluid temperatures based on the heat terminal units, not on the return temperature of the boiler. So, in other words, what they ought to do is look at say, okay, well, to get that ninety-seven percent efficiency at design conditions, we need like eighty-degree return temperature coming back through that, and then use eighty-degree return temperatures in the log mean temperature calculation for the sizing of the heat exchanger and the air handler. 
Right? That's what I'm talking about. That's the difference between good design and excellent design because they might go ahead and they might specify based on whatever, pick a number, 120 return, 150 return temperature, 140 return temperature at design conditions, not the 80 that the boiler needs in order to get to achieve its, its fullest yeah. capability. I'll summarize that. What you're saying is average and good design uses rules of thumb in HVAC because no one dies when you get it wrong. Yeah. And what you're promoting is actual real design <laughs> with real calculations. <laughs> and that's Ooh, what yeah. clients that's think what they're paying for, but they're not actually getting that. No. No, they don't. And one, and this, so this is the other problem is that, well, we talked about this before, silos. You know, the industry yeah. operates in silos. So you have the architectural silo, you got the electrical engineer silo, you got the interior designer silo, you got the mechanical engineer silo. You know, there's so many silos and no one's looking at, they might even look at their optimization within their own silo, but they forget about that everybody's holding hands at the end of the project, right? I mean, everything's got to come yeah. together. And so this not, it's a separation, not... It's more segregated design instead of integrated design. I yeah. wrote about that as well, segregated versus integrated design. And so when we have segregated design, we'll never actually get that optimization, you know, getting to those higher levels of performance because no one's talking to each other. And so what I mean by that, so here's a, here's a good example. We actually, and, you know, we're the architect has a client, they design a building, they look at things like window-to-wall ratios, right? And the client wants, you know, this beautiful all-glass building. We've talked about this before. Yeah. Even some of our clients online, we talk about some of the bad decisions that get made, you know, window-to-wall ratios. And no one sits down and looks at inside surface temperatures of that glass under yep. design conditions, heating or the cooling, and they just look at the, the load calculations, and they never do an, a thermal comfort calculations. And so, the design, the architectural design, doesn't get optimized with the mechanical design, which means it's not optimized with the indoor environmental requirements. And so ultimately, the people, the occupants, suffer. Yeah. But to answer that question, I would say it's a, it's a money issue and a client issue. So what I mean by that is clients give mixed messages, say they want everything, but I don't want to pay for everything, right? But still give it to me anyway. That's pretty much what they say to all design engineers. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a money issue there, but also clients, I'm talking big commercial developments here, right? They need to be what I call expert clients. They need people in-house who know when people are blowing smoke up their ass, right? And they need to, one of the reasons I'm down on design and build is because what typically happens is the, the job gets designed to sort of DD stage 40, 50% gets handed over to a construction firm on design-build basis, and then they take them DD drawings and just build it. They don't do any detailed, any sort of design development and construction drawings. And this is where I think it goes to. Most jobs get done to 40 50%, and many jobs, maybe even 50% in the commercial sector, don't get developed past that. Yeah. Right? And then you wind up with things that sort of work but don't work, but there's no consequences for not doing that work, right? I've been on big, massive jobs where they've been handed over to a designer, Bill Contractor, and he submitted his construction drawings, and they are literally the same DD drawings with a different block title block. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and no one says a word except me, and then they all look at me like I'm a crazy person. So, you know, you get... Well, that's because you, know, you are. Well, that's because I am, most definitely. <laughs> but, you know, if I always think to myself, if I was a client... And I actually knew this was going on. I'd lose my mind, right? Because I'm paying for this. At the very least, I'd say, give me some of my money back. <laughs> There's a, you, I, I'm with you, man. I, you, you and I should be, become client advocates. We would be yeah. nasty. We'd be, we'd be nasty, but we, we'd be fair and nasty. 
Yeah, but we would, their buildings we, would work, mate. I tell you, that'd be the difference. Yeah, absolutely, they would yeah. work because we've seen enough bad buildings and we've been on both sides. I mean, we understand yeah. the engineering, we understand the project management, we understand client expectations, blah, 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 right? Yeah, so, so Matt brings up a good question. It, you know, average to excellence. Yeah. Another way to answer that question is maybe there is something that is on the engineers to find a way to streamline their processes so that they can get to the 40, 50% drawings very quickly, but then spend their fee on taking it from the 40, 50% to the 90% drawings, mm -hmm. right? There's yep. a process there, right? But, you know, I remember when I was running an M&E design firm, having time to even have that thought is just very difficult. Yeah, but hey, this, this takes us back to this original question about efficiencies or inefficiency in construction. Yes. Right? If we started to deal with modular processes, yep. then that is your 40 to 50% completion, right? Yes. Yep. And you mentioned an individual or who's talking about you know the Bestoke designs. And I go back to, again, you know, I get onto these kicks about you know using the human body as a, as a model, right? Inside of us, Everybody has lungs, kidneys, you know, gallbladders, spleen, liver, you know, heart, lungs. Like we all have inside of us modular construction, yes. right? But that's yet true. on the outside, every one of us looks different. Actually, that's a very good analogy. I like that a lot. Right? Yeah. So, you know, the modular construction, like going back to Matt's question, right? Is a, And your comment about, you know, 40 to 50% can be already done when you get into modular yeah. construction, and then the rest of it can be done to optimize the rest yes. of the design. Take it from average to excellence. That's where the money should be spent. Why are we spending all that money on shit that is can be standardized? Couldn't agree more. Maybe that's the solution actually to the design conundrum: is like standardize the fifty percent and then optimize the last fifty percent. Yeah, that's. You know, this goes back to, again, that definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over yep. again and expecting different results. Well, you know, when you stick build, design stuff from scratch, and you waste all that time and effort designing the same thing over and over again, and at the end of this project, we still have post-occupancy evaluations that tell us that we suck, <laughs> you know, right? So maybe, so that's, <laughs> this, is, this is a good discussion, Matt. Like, thank you for asking this question yeah, because no, ultimately, a, yeah. Good right? question. Good question. So, All right. Let's move on. So we got a question. Next question is from an international listener in Estonia. So I'm going to apologize now for ruining your name with my English accent, but here we go. It's from Ula Palmisti. Ula Palmisti. I'm, I apologize if I've got that wrong, but I am English and we never speak any other languages, I'm afraid. I'm sorry about that. Mm. Anyway, he's from Estonia, which is good. So I'm pumped to know we've got people in Estonia listening. He sent me a question about careers in building services and built environment. So his question is, what are the different career options related to built environments that a young person can choose and from what would be the pros and cons of these career paths? So I'm going to try and answer this because this could be a very long answer. But going back to Steve Burrows, there's never been a better time to be an engineer in a built environment. Things mm -hmm. are awesome. Technology is colliding with good practice, with money, with the need to build vertically and reinvent our, our cities. So it's a great time to be alive and it is a great time to be an engineer. And 
due to the complexity of buildings and how that complexity has grown over the last 20 years, there are so many career options. So you can be a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, civil engineer. You could also be a specialist in fire, commissioning, controls, sustainability. There are so many options, right? So I think from a career point of view, you've got to get the fundamentals down. So that normally involves doing a mechanical, electrical or building services degree or college diploma. Boom. But you should only consider that the basics. That's the equivalent of a chess master taking all the pieces off the board and just putting a king and a pawn on each side and teaching you how to do that. (laughs) After that, that, that. you've got to specialise. And that specialisation, so what do you know when you leave university? From my personal experience, it turned out to be less than nothing. So you've got to sort of start to know yourself. You've got to ask yourself what fires you up because it's way better to be excited about your job than not. So I would advise anyone who's sort of graduating, get that, get the basics underhand, hopefully find an Obi-Wan Kenobi who will teach you and then start to be aware, work with intention, pay attention to where you think things are going, look in the macro environment, but find out and try and notice what gets you excited. When you're on a train on the way home or on the bus or in the car on the way home, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about sustainability? Are you thinking about why are buildings so inefficient? Are you thinking about why can't there be more software in buildings? This gives you the clue to where you should apply your speciality, right? Yeah. Because the field is wide and it is great. You can have a great career and you can make a difference. There is the ability here to get into a job where you can make a difference to a building. And a building is a multi-generational asset. So if you make a good impact on that, you are affecting something for 25 years. What's wrong with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I have a two-part answer to this question. And the first part is we had Bill Bonfliff on, and I I love Bill. And I follow him wherever I can. Am I at the stalker level? (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Bill, if you're listening... I might be a, I might be a stalker. I don't know, but you know, but he but he the guy gets it. Like yeah. he has a great macro view, and but he can also dump into the micro stuff pretty quick yeah. too. But you know, Penn State and the architectural engineering program, architectural engineering, that phrase alone has power in it. Yes, and you know because if you go back into the past, you know, like Roman days uh, and even before that, right. And they come up in time. The architects and the engineers were a a, a person, not multiple yes. disciplines, but yes. a single person. They understood science and they understood the art and the architecture, the form and function. They got all of that stuff. So my answer to this question is, you know, if there's a career path, but also follow it on your line. If that's something that is a passion to you, then the architectural engineering route is makes a lot of sense. And then my second answer to that, second part of that answer is, and I don't remember, I think it was Zeke Zeeler who said this, that you become the people you hang around with and the books that you read. So if you have a passion for whatever, I don't, and not even, let's say set aside the fact that we're talking about property development, but whatever your passions are, you need to feed that passion by hanging around people who are as or more passionate than you, and you need to read the materials around your passion, whether it's you know online in in old fashioned books, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever, whatever it is, you got to feed your passion, right? 
don't let it die because I think one of the greatest gifts that we have is the ability to is to find your passion and feed it. I have, you know, Adam, I don't know about you. I've been blessed. Oh, I have God, not yeah. I have not worked a single day in my life. Every day of my life has been fun. It's there's been challenges, there's no doubt about it, right? But I've never had to get up in the morning and say, Oh God, I gotta go to work today. Never ever had that that feeling. Ever. I love what I do. I love what I do. And but my dad was a smart guy, right? And he said, you know what? You're unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> you need to grasp on to what makes you get up in the morning and feed that. And he helped me understand that in a way that I'll always be grateful to him for that. You know, so I hung around with people who were in the construction industry. I, I was amazed at the engineers and what the engineers did. The yeah. whole process of taking a raw piece of land and creating a structure from that, right? So I read books about architecture. I read books about engineering and property development. And then I read business books about business, right? Because I like the business side of it too, right? And then I like the fact that, that there's people inside buildings. So I read about human physiology and psychology in the built environment. And then I understood the power of demographics. So I started to read about demographics and then about aging and how people age in buildings. So I started to study that. You know, it's just find your passion, whatever gets you up in the morning and feed that fire. And that will be one of the best things that you can do for your life. For sure. Hang around. If you want to get good at golf, you have to play with people who are better than you. Right? Yep. That's what that's the takeaway there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Um, next one. That's oh yeah, okay. So this next question is from Nancy. And it's not I don't think so Nancy, A, thank you for listening. Yes. <laughs> thank you for listening to our podcast. We really appreciate that. I think this was an episode that we had we had Christoph Irwin on. Right. And again, can't say enough about Christoph and his crew at Positive Energy. Those guys are I mean, I love them. I, mean, I, I truly love them. They're like yeah, I mean, if you want to model a business that's got a path forward, sees where you need to go, Christoph and his company, that's it, man. Those guys got game. And I would encourage you to listen to his podcast because they are great podcasts as well. Anyways, when we're t this, Nancy, I think I mean, this was the episode with Christoph. I think your question more applies to him. She's talking about a product that Christoph mentioned, and we're not really product experts, so we're not going to take this question on. But I do have a bit of a background in construction engineering, <laughs> and I have a little bit of understanding of cementaceous uh, materials. And it sounds like you have a, an issue there with a, with a sealant and curing. So maybe you ought to get a hold of Christoph. We'll send Christoph an email, so maybe you can expect a call from you. But we're going to just sort of sidestep that question because it's not really in our in our on our radar screen. Okay, yeah, that's good. Best uh, not to get into stuff we don't know, but. For sure, we'll pass it on to Christoph and see if we can get him to reply. Yep. Um, yep. But thanks for listening and thanks for asking the question as well. Appreciate it. Yeah, so, you betcha. So here's one for you, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> <Should> you, <laughs> I love this question. Should you study for a master's in mechanical or electrical engineering? Right. Short answer no. <laughs> right. And here's why. Um, <laughs> my professor, so I've got a master's degree in project management. Yeah, Boohoo, right? But one of the things that they hammered into me over two years was the it was all about risk management and the correct allocation of resources. So time and money are a precious resource, right? They are both wasting resources. So if you need a bachelor's degree to get a license to be a professional engineer and you do not need a master's degree 
to get a license to be a professional engineer, why the hell are you doing a master's degree, right? Now, there is a place, a time and place for a master's degree. So my advice to, to anyone is this. If you want to be a practicing engineer out in the world, designing buildings, designing engineering products, and your licensing benchmark is a bachelor's, get a bachelor's. Get that license and move on and be awesome in the world. Having a master's degree will add nothing to your ability. If you want to move into academia, a master's degree and a PhD, that's probably where you need to go. But I think that is a very small slice of the engineering population. And let me give you a perspective from an employer's point of view. I've had several firms and I've seen too many resumes to make makes my eyes bleed. But whenever I saw someone who had a master's degree, say in mechanical engineering, and a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. That told me something. That told me that when they graduated, they either didn't want to leave college or they couldn't get a job. And then they defaulted back to college and or university. And I know universities put a lot of pressure and pitch you to get a master's degree because you'll stand out and be different. But I can tell you from an employer's point of view. <laughs> so no. a plaid shirt. Yeah. So from an employer's point of view, a master's degree does nothing for you unless your employer is a university or college. That's my personal opinion. I have a master's degree, right? So am I a hypocrite? Probably. But <laughs> my master's degree is not in engineering. It is in something that is adjacent to my profession. So I wanted to do an MBA, long story short, and my bachelor's supervisor said to me, you don't want to do an MBA. Everyone's got an MBA. Get a project management degree. At least you'll have an MSc and it will look better. And she was <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing she coached me on was, you know, you don't need an engineering master's. You need something adjacent. You need to be more rounded. And that was great advice for me. And I yeah. pass that advice on for sure. I think that was, that was good because – what I got out of it was a skill stack that said, okay, I, my basics are, you know, I'm a commission engineer. And on top of that, I have project management skills and credentials, yes. right? Which yep. made me a more rounded professional, I guess, right? Yeah. So think? we've had we've had a lot of people on who have their PhDs and masters. Yeah. But these are, and if you want to be unique in a world of academia, great, go for it, right? Mm. There's an exception. There's two exceptions, maybe more, but two that come to mind. One is Dr. Simmons, Peter Simmons, and the other one is Marcel Hammond and um, Harmon. And uh, so here's two individuals who have their PhDs. In the case of Marcel, he has a really diverse train of education. I love that guy's DNA. Like yes. he's, you know, he just, he didn't stick to just say for engineering, for example. He looked at anthropology. I can't think back. I think his master's degree or his PhD was in anthropology. Anyways, yeah. his bio is on online. But the way that he looks at the world comes from the fact that he's exposed his brain to multiple areas of academia. And then he's managed to put it together into a package. And now he's and he's a practitioner, right? So Yeah, he's a skill stack there that works. Oh, it's, it's powerful. And in the case of Peter Simmons, you know, the guy started out, you know, working as a pipe fitter. Yeah. You know? Had a, had a great brain, ended up getting his PhD. The guy's not an academic, but he's traveled all over the world and has done worked on you know some incredible buildings. So you're you talk about that stacked skills, and and so my answer to this is that if you're gonna if you want to spend another two years, you know what? Either do it in the business side or another another area of practice, or get another engineering degree like electrical. And I yes. keep coming. I keep thinking of my guy, Tim McGinn, he's retired now, right? Guy had both mechanical engineering license and an electrical, right? So 
that guy, he was a huge asset to any project because he got the mechanical and electrical side, but he also understand building science. And because he was a practitioner, he got to do his stuff. He got to see the results of his stuff. And then as he kept working on his skills and the project, he'd be, I mean, the guy did some great buildings and, you know, that's because he had that multiple talent. Actually, you know what? That's the engineer of the future, the, the person that can really be multidisciplined to some degree, yep. at least have a deep understanding of adjacent disciplines. That person is going to be very valuable. And shout out to uh, Marcel and uh, Peter Simmons. They are both awesome. You should listen to them podcasts again, but Peter Simmons, I tell you, man, if I could come back in another life, that guy is my Obi-Wan Kenobi. He is just <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, and there's guys that are like that, and they – you know, they rattle people's cages. Mm. That's what I like about them because they, the, the dogma that exists and status quo that exists and, you know, it's business as usual. Don't, you know, don't play outside the lines. Like, don't color outside. All those guys colored outside the lines. Like, they basically told you to take your line, you yeah. draw it, and stuff it, right? Yeah. It, we're going to color outside the line, and if you don't like it, tough shit, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, okay, that's... So, Masters, you heard her answer. That was a great question, by the way. Actually, I think yep. we've bled into an answer for the next question, well, which is what is a re recommended skill stack for future building services engineers? That's obviously a yeah. UK question because they use the word building service engineers. But again, yeah. actually, I just I, a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking down at the ABC conference in Texas, and my subject was about the future of building services. And uh, I, I spoke about that. That presentation is going to be online on the ABC website. I'll post about that when it goes on. But, mm. and it's a video, so I apologize up front for how I look. But yeah. the, the skill stack <laughs> is important because it goes back to how we answered the question before, right? There's the fundamentals. Yeah. The chess master will teach you with two or three or four pieces on the board before yeah. he gets you up to the full board. That's yeah. how you should think about your career in, in building services engineering. You're starting with the fundamentals, then you're adding to it based on your interest and passion, right? You're building up to that point. And I don't care who you are. You are not senior until you're at least eight or 10 years into your career, period, yep. done. And you need to be more rounded than just a mechanical engineer at that point. You need writing skills, communication skills, specialisms maybe, right? So yeah. recommended skill stack includes soft skills, hard skills, and specialisms. In short, yeah. and the long answers in my presentation, which you can see online later. Yeah. Yeah. And for those that are starting out and are like uh, us who are unemployable, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, <laughs> we have a hard time working for other people. Yeah. You know, like I was, I went more the technology route. So, and so when I look back at my skill stack, and this is something that I actually used in filtering out applicants for people that work for me, yeah. you know, I started out in the trades. Yeah. Right. And I had several years under my belt before going to school and developing sort of that academic part of it. And then when I got out and I started buying and growing and selling businesses, I realized that I also needed more. And I already had – my dad was a CA. My brother is a CA. Another one's a CMA. My sister was a, a mark. Like business was around the kitchen table, yeah. right? Like I, have my, I got my business education. I got most of my business education listening to my family talk about business at the, at the breakfast table. But I realized that, you know, there was one point I had to go back. So I went to the University of Calgary. They had a business owner transition program. It was a six-month program there. And basically what they did is they took their, you know, their MBA program and stripped it down to six months, which made it – you nice. think an MBA – nice. you think an MBA is hard to do in two years? You try to <laughs> cram it into six months. 
it was freaking brutal because you hey to get into the program you had to be uh you know had to own the business so i right there check mark number one i got in the own yeah. business right and i wanted to grow it so that was the other thing so what are you going to do so we went to school and i try to remember this because a few years ago we went to school monday wednesday friday and saturday all day long nice right we had sunday off thank god <laughs> tuesday tuesday and thursday we were back running our businesses right yeah. right so and I was a young man at the time. Like, I mean, I sold my last business when I was 40 uh, some years old, right? I was, yeah. I was a young, I was a young guy. But I, when I went to university at the UFC, I think I was like 34, 35 at the time, you know, yeah. and, and I had a family, a young family, right? And we, you know, there's lots of stuff that was going on, but so you're raising a family, you're running a business, you're going to school. It's brutal, right? Yeah. But you do that when you're young, <laughs> yeah. or or when you're retired, right? Yes. So you don't you don't want to be doing that mid career. Like mid career is when you start to make is when you're making money, right? Yes. And like and going back to your point, like these guys, it's a good previous question about master's degrees. There was a study that was done looking at the income increases from something that has a degree to a master's to a PhD. And the reality is, guys. This, you know, there's not a huge quantum leap. You're, you, and the part of the reason is, is that to get that that PhD, there's a bunch of debt that typically goes along with students. So if you're one of those people that has no problem with money because someone's funding your education, well, then God bless you. Go ahead and get a, several PhDs, right? But most people, that by the time they get done with their PhDs, they owe like hundreds of thousands of dollars or if not tens of thousands of dollars, right? And so, yeah, okay, maybe you start out with a little bit higher income, but you still got more debt to pay off, right? Where the person has their degree, they're out of the gate running, earning money, and after, say, another six years, they've reached a senior position within their firms, and they're earning just as much as the PhD after the guy has paid off his debt. You know what I mean? Yep. So so from a, from a monetary point of view, going back to that previous question, I don't know, man. Get your, like you said, get your degree and get earn them a cash, man. Midlife, that's when you're making the money, right? So, ROI, return on investment. Always <laughs> ask yourself that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, anyways, I agree with. I mean, we've had we beat this one to death, but yeah. stack your skills is is a good. You should do it. We should do a training program on stacking your skills. I yeah, like there's, that, a, there's a training course there. I think somewhere in the future. Yeah. 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 Okay. Here's so this next one. What's this all about? What do you? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll take this one. What do you think of the impact of IoT and 5G on building design? So this, again, was a subject I spoke about at the AABC conference, and it will be on okay. video online. But the short answer is I believe in the next five to ten years there's going to be a convergence, and 5G is going to be the real driver of this, of Internet of Things. I mean, we've all been talking about the Internet of Things, but let's face it, it's been a bit of a boo-hoo so far, right? So, mm. But it's going to be 5G is going to make the difference. Right. So what that means is, you know, I put a slide up and it was a Belimo valve, but it was more than that. So I asked the audience, what is this? And everyone went, it's an energy valve, but it's not. It's a data acquisition machine. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So <laughs> yeah. with 5G, you're going to be able to retrofit buildings that are going to have Internet ready devices, control valves, for example. Let's talk about them. Right. They do not need to go for a route. So they go straight onto 5G with no latency. And all of a sudden, Building owners are going to have visibility in real time on performance. It's going to affect commissioning, balancing people, controls people, you know, mm. dongles and lawn and backnet, all that. Goodbye to that. Right. This is going to be quite profound and it's really going to help the retrofit of buildings. Right. Because mm. you'll be able to retrofit this equipment in and then see what's going on. And then the, the commission engineers of the future 
are going to have to deal with massive data sets and be able to write algorithms and understand the applied science that goes with that. The people yep. that can do that, they're going to make some serious money. But, you know, that's, uh, that's the short answer to that. So I think the impact is going to be profound and it's coming quicker than you think. It's going to be like there was, there was a time when everybody had a BlackBerry and three years later everybody had an iPhone. It's going to be like that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we've, we've had some really interesting discussions on the Internet of Things and buildings and all that. And, you know, and I, well, I think both you and I have come a long ways on our thoughts on it. Yeah, I think we're still. Well, I'm not going to speak for on your behalf, but I know I'm still. I still have some cynicism about it. <laughs> but yeah. talking to the people we have had online have got me to has got me to open up my eyes and understand is from a you know from a data point of view, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, and where we're going with it, and again, I go back to the automobile, and the agricultural industry. And these new terms, you know, so we started out with the, you know, the blue collar worker, the white collar worker, and then there's the social networker. And yeah. now we're at a stage where we're at what we call the green gold worker. And the green gold worker is, and a really good example of that, again, going back, looking at automobiles and agriculture. So the farmer of today and tomorrow is a technician yep. that understands the need for data and communication. And so, you know, he's, Sitting there in front of his terminal, monitoring the progress of his, you know, his cedar, for example, or his combine, and he's looking at production and he's looking at market prices for his crop, right? There's and the yeah. devices are doing quality control on the grains. He knows what you know the potential is for whether it's going to feed or it's going to go to make beer. You know, like there's there's a whole bunch of information that he's gathering in real time from his equipment. So he's not the, he's not driving the thing anymore. He's not taking his product to a, a granary to have it analyzed for quality. Like he's doing all of that from his terminal. And the same thing with the mechanics of the cars today, right? So these mechanics, again, they're the blue collar is not the blue collar anymore. They're the technology worker, right? Yeah. And so, you know, there are, and this has actually been around for a while now. I mean, the computers that are in cars and these guys go in and they plug in their computers Right, but now we're talking about self-driving vehicles. I mean, that if you look at the continuum that we're on, right? And then, mm -hmm. you know, people really, people that listen to this podcast, you and I have a, both a very, I, I think, a really good grasp of the meaning of continuum. Yeah. You know, we, we're on a continuum of many things, right? And when you look at the evolution of vehicles, for example, the continuum of that that started, you know, a long time ago, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, toward 2000s. And then, you know, so we, we're watching the past, we're living the present, and now we're looking at, well, where's the future going to go? Well, today's technology sort of tells us where the future is going to go. And so we talk about the Internet of Things and 5G. I'm with you on this. I mean, the, yeah. you take the smart valve, the smart pump, the smart chiller, the heat pump, the data that's coming off of these devices – allows us to optimize the building. That also tells us a lot about the building itself and how people are operating it. So, yeah, I, you know, the building commissioning person of the future is not going to be, you know, somebody who's going to go out there with their handheld device and plug into a valve and get a pressure differential and look at the CV and say, okay, well, you know, that's not going to happen. It's going to be all done from some remote location, really. It can be. Yep. Yeah, we're in the twilight of them days. Actually, your analogy to farming is really good. I saw a documentary about this farmer in America, it was a few months ago, and his job was data-driven. 
Mm. He was data-driven on everything, on when he planted, how he planted, how he watered, how much yeah. fertiliser he put in. It was a highly, highly technical job. Yeah. And he was making decisions based on data acquisition. Right? Yep. That is going to bleed into buildings sooner or later. And, you know, so, you know, all of a sudden, a farm, most people think of a farmer, they think of a guy in muddy Wellington boots, you know, up to his neck in shit. Yeah. And it, it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's, I mean, for those worldwide that are listening in, Canada has legalized marijuana, coast to coast, right? You can go anywhere yeah. and you, you can buy the stuff for recreational, but it's been around for medical for a long, long time. But the whole production of cannabis, you know, think about this, right, in terms of data acquisition. So they can have optical eyes uh, mm-hmm. looking at the plant, and they can see the THC resin as it evolves, right? They know what stage the plant is at. They can do automatic sampling of soil conditions. They can adjust their fertilization, the moisture content, environmental controls. Like some of these facilities are pretty advanced, right? And that's all done through computerized systems. So, you know, in the I mean, you think about the guys that used to grow pot illegally, right? I mean, most yeah. of them were potheads anyway, right? They had not, they had no idea about <laughs> chemistry, right? They had yeah. no idea. All they knew yeah. is that, you know what, we're going to grab some seeds off the last bag we smoked. We're going to put yeah. it in a pot, water it. Hopefully, we're going to get rid of the males, end up with some female plants. And they, had no, they didn't know nothing, right? Today, these guys making this stuff, it's like on the continuum, you know, everything is all you know, all done with uh, optical eyes and instrumentation, and all yeah. that data acquisition goes into a computer system, yeah. and everything is adjusted from the computer, right? So, no, you know, if they get they can do it with weed, they can do it with all kinds. Oh yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So right? the more you look at adjacent industries, the more you realize what a holdout the construction industry is. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, think go again, go back to cars, right, and sensors, like proximity sensors, right? Yeah. You know, like the stuff that have been put onto vehicles and transportation and manufacturing. You know, think about the manufacturing process, right? Bottling lines, you know, bottling beer, you know, or yeah. any other consumer goods, right? All of the automation, making the equipment. I mean, there are there are plants, you know, in Europe, huge, huge facilities. They got one or two people working in them. Basically, they operate in the dark. There's no yeah. lighting, yeah. right? Because the computer and the robots do absolutely everything, right? So they don't need lights. They don't need people. None of that kinds of stuff. And they produce high-quality products because it's systems, repeatable, blah, 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 right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, yeah, could, so all right. one more question left. Take yeah. it away. What role, if any, do you see for the public sector to lead the retrofit of the current building stock to net zero? Specifically, the current stock in the education sector, K-12, is mostly 1950s to 1970s code built and could be a big opportunity to save operating, uh, in brackets, tax dollars. That's from Graham M. Whoever M is, Graham, thanks for your uh, question. So, Adam, what role, if any, do you see the public sector to lead the retrofit of buildings? Interesting. Let's let's take that in reverse. So we've got in North America and Europe, there is a large stock of 1950s and 70s co-built school buildings, for sure. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. is a direct reaction to the demographic explosion called the baby boomers. Yep. So for one, I would demolish half them buildings, right? Now, there's unions involved, so that gets difficult, but basically there's an oversupply of school buildings and teachers. So that needs to be rationalised. But let's take that aside because that's political. The retrofit of buildings. So what's happened in New York recently is interesting. I blogged about it in May 9th on my blog on buildingwhisperer.com. So New York have got what's called the 80-50 plan, right? So 
they passed this legislation in the New York municipality and it is aimed at directly at existing building stock. And the bottom line is they've set these targets and over a period of time to 2050, they're going to move existing buildings into not a net zero, but a much, much reduced environmental footprint. And the way they're enforcing that, and this is where it gets clever, if you are a building owner in New York and let's say you get two floors become vacant and the tenant, new tenant wants to fit out, they are not giving you a building permit unless you move forward and do some retrofits and do the recommissioning and uh, mm. retro commissioning that they specify. So what's already started to happen is I saw a presentation by someone from the municipality at a conference this year. Some of the, obviously, this is New York, everything's political. Some of the um, big building owners are going, you know, F you, we're not doing that. And so the, the municipality is saying, sure, no building permits for you then. And their assets are becoming stranded. So, you know, a tenant's Ooh. coming in, I can't retrofit. So they're going on to another building. Now, whether Ooh. this legislation will stand the test of a new administration coming in, I doubt it. But it's an interesting approach because when you comes to buildings and and construction and building and design, big sticks is the only thing that can get things done. And as a libertarian I am, this is a real role for government. Mm -hmm. Taking Saeed Alibar's observation, real change comes from municipalities because they, yep. ha they yep. have to react directly. They, they have the most direct, intimate relationship with voters, right? So municipalities really are the rock stars here. Uh, California is an example of that. I'm not saying California is utopia, but there's a lot of activity there, right? There's a lot of things trying to be done, good, bad, and indifferent. And New York now seems to be on that road. And if that legislation can get passed in New York, one of the most political, possibly corrupt places, <laughs> possibly, <laughs> right, yeah. then there's hope for me in that. But it takes a big stick. No one's doing this on their own. So existing buildings are the 99%. If you take the total building stock, 1% are new, 99% of them are existing. That is where you have to shift emphasis. Yep. And that involves, I believe, getting rid of old ones and retrofitting good ones. And retrofitting them is completely and utterly possible. So I, I am optimistic on that based yeah. on municipalities taking the lead. What do you think? I agree. And we see that, you know, that coffee pot's been percolating, right? And it's starting to starting to boil because a boil over. And and you can look at it again, going back to change by municipalities, either small municipalities. It really doesn't matter, right? Because you can scale it up. I mean, you look at look at you know some of the well, Vancouver, for example, is a good example with their step codes. You know, they've they've decided that you know what, there's we live in Canada, but We've made some decisions here for our population that are going to require change at a different rate than what the status quo is doing, and we're going to accelerate it. And in many ways, they were influenced by California. So that whole West Coast has, and you know, so the state of Washington, all all of Portland, all that whole area, those municipalities or states or provinces, not at the national level or federal level, but at a local level or state level, provincial level have basically said with or without you we're going to do we're making change yes on a larger political scale or economic scale we have countries that are doing the same thing go back to denmark norway sweden germany all of these sort of nordic countries who have also taken the same steps and so 
this is an interesting time that we're in because we have a big part of the population. You know, let's go back to the Pareto principle, 80%, you know, yeah. that are holding on to the past. And there's the 20% on the outside, 10% aren't doing anything, the other 10% are doing something. But eventually that graph shifts. And, you know, it's funny because all these smart people that are holding on to the past, you know, like when I think about economists, lawyers, physicians, scientists, engineers, those people in society that are holding on to dogma, right? And it is dogma. Most, yeah, right. And, and most of them have recognized in their life and in their career that change always came from outside of the status quo, right? And so here we have globally this macro movement that's going on by the Nordic countries, by the states like California, by the city of Vancouver, right? These are all examples of outside of the status quo that are making change. And so Akbar's comment about change coming from within municipalities, I am totally on board with that. I think that's really for him to you know to observe that and to yeah. make that statement was really progressive, really forward thinking. And I love that thought process because it's from the outside looking in and saying and the in that everybody in the inside of that curve, the 80 per 20 percent, you guys are the status quo. You are the dogma. You are you're holding on to stuff that we on the outside no longer hold on to. We've broke free of that, that uh, those those belief systems, and we want to make change. It's like going back to Greta again, right? She yeah. doesn't fall into the eighty percent. No, she falls no. into the twenty percent, right? She's, she's an one outlier. of the. Yeah. She's an out, uh, outlier, right? Who's it? Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, he Malcolm wrote, Gladwell. Yeah, right. Love him. I love his stuff that he wrote. Right, talks about the outliers, and I think he wrote was did he was he the author of the world is flat? Was that Malcolm? No, no, that was Friedman. Oh yeah, yeah, Friedman, right? Martin Friedman, yeah. Yeah, Martin, yeah. Wasn't it Friedman? Friedman, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so interesting, the, right? Sorry, so world, the world is flat, right? And so this, this book goes back a few years ago now, but he was talking about India and you know China and Africa and and his example was is that the world of science and engineering and where science fits into political systems, right? And so if you come to you go to North America. That our political systems are populated by economists and lawyers. Yes. Right? <laughs> way too many. <laughs> but way too many, right? And, I, you know, I really want to use some really bad language here, but they basically have effed up the political systems. Well, right? Uh, yeah. And, and our but, political cycles five years, right? Whereas other countries can think in longer terms than that. Yeah. So when you think about other countries where there's, where the political systems are more si- more driven by scientists, right? There's a different motive or a different view of how political systems should run. And, you know, so when we think about change and public sector, I think that we're seeing that now. I think that coffee pot has started to percolate. I think we're going to see it start to boil over. And we're going to continue to see people within the 80% try to fight, you know, hold on to what they are, what they believe to be true. While the rest of the these other leading nations, Nordic countries, California, West Coast, you know, people, you know, they use derogatory terms to describe them, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a person, Greta, or Vancouver, or California, or Denmark, right? There's three examples of a person, a city, a state, and a country who are all getting the world's attention. It's, it's interesting. This question actually has triggered me a little bit because I'm thinking – 
in North America, take Canada and America, right? So everyone builds to code. There's no way around that. That's just what happens. So yeah. you have to change the code. That's a legislation issue, right? Right. Right. And then if it's existing buildings, you have to link it to some stick, which is permits. So I think that was the genius of the New York solution. But the mm. other thing I get a bit concerned with that everyone used to focus on lead certification. Now everyone's focusing on net zero. It's like we've got a collective ADHD, right? <laughs> we just got all net zero, right? Now, net zero, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm all good with it. But I like Lloyd Alter's approach. Just do better. Use less, right? <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah net yeah. zero is a good target. But what about if we could reduce things by 50%, energy footprints by 50%? No one gets fired for that, surely, right? Yeah. So you should have a high goal, and net zero is a very high goal. That's not... Let's not be stupid. That's a, a very difficult thing to achieve. It's achievable. Yeah. But what about saying, okay, let's say we got a thousand K twelve schools, let's get rid of half of them and redevelop the other half, right? And let's make that redevelopment target, you know, eighty percent more efficient or fifty percent more efficient, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Whatever that well, may you, be. No, you know, and, and you're that's a you bang on there. And we can also substitute schools. Right, substitute that word schools with shopping centers. Yeah, or offices even. I mean, we or, co-work in spaces and everyone working from home and online. How yeah. many offices do we actually need? Yeah. Well, I was at a, I was at a, it was a presentation. It was interior designers. We got to get an interior designer on. I have a couple of yeah. people li- lined up because, you know, they have a they have a huge influence over architect or where we're going, uh, yeah. especially in existing buildings, right? Because when buildings get stripped down. We're not talking about structural engineers involved anymore or architects. No. The building already exists. It's interior designers, my friends. Yes. So anyways, I was at a, a, uh, at a training program, and they were talking about one of the examples. It was a shopping center. It was converted into a senior care facility. Nice. And, what was great, and what was great about it, so I'm listening to this presentation, and I don't, it doesn't quite hit me yet, the importance of this, but every large shopping center has a center core, and you walk around the center core. So, you know, think of what seniors, right? They like to, you know, stay active. Yeah. So these, this mall, you know, the outside became the housing, the kitchen, all the, the support areas, the living areas. But the center courts, you know, became the walkway. It was the running track or the walking track. Yeah. And then they got food areas where they can congregate and yeah. socialize. Yeah. Socialize. Right. It is yeah. perfect. Right. And I'm thinking, damn right. That's, that's what we're talking about. Right. Adaptive and, reuse of buildings is a big yeah. thing. That no one yep. talks about. Yeah. Who was talking about vertical farming? We had a guest on. I was talking about oh, that was farming. Andrew Bowbank, and I am a Andrew, big fan of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I right. Andrew's a pretty Andrew's gone on some some other things. We should get him back on again, maybe uh actually uh, yeah, I was speaking yeah. to him the other day and he's had some interesting experiences we left. I have to speak to him about coming on again because he's a big proponent of vertical farming and he's uh got a he's got a friend in the business who's actually trying to make that happen at scale at the moment. So I'll have to speak to him about that. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, Adam. I mean, we just kind of answered the ten questions. Yeah. We we're really grateful for the people that we've had on. There's no doubt about it. The oh, people have sure. given given up their time to talk to a couple of lunatics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they they've been all incredibly intelligent. All very the, the deep thing. Very yeah. thoughtful. Yeah. A lot of them, most I would say, almost all of them, very humble uh, people. You know that I mean we're, we're we're probably the exception to all of those terms. Which means we've been very very blessed to have all of these people yes. online. We're and we're looking for more guests, right? We're, for yeah. and we're looking we're we're looking for people 
who are exactly that. They're willing to rock the boat. They're intelligent. They're humble, very thoughtful. They're thought leaders yep. on a macro scale. You know, like we're looking for people who can stand on the world scale and say, you know, you guys, what you're doing is absolutely stupid. And here's why. And here's what we should be doing. And here's how we get to like people have solutions, right? It's easy to sit up and point your finger and say, yeah, there's a problem, right? And, and I remember when we had our businesses and people come to us and say, we have a problem. And I said, well, what's the solution? Well, yeah. I don't know. I just identified the problem. <laughs> Look, at, next time you come to my office, you come in here with the problem. You also come up with three solutions yeah, and tell me, me which answer. one you yeah. give me a freaking answer, right? Because it's easy to identify the problems. You and I do that all the time. Yeah. But we also have ideas on how to fix it. Yeah, that's the difference, right? So I, I, I was thinking as you were saying that, I'm, I need to go for my Rolodex. We need to get a property developer on here, like someone who works at the commercial level on a big scale mm-hmm. and get their take on things, their frustrations, you know, because when I was doing property development, I used to come out of meetings and want to cry sometimes. It was so frustrating because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're having this meeting and you're trying to give direction and it's just not going in. And it's just, you know, engineers and architects sometimes are terrible at taking direction, right? Yeah. Because they want to do what they want to do. <laughs> It's fascinating. I want, I'm going to, you know what? We should try and find somebody from uh, a city, a property developer from a city where it's booming and one where it sucks. Because yes. here we're at, so I'm in Calgary here. I mean, we, I think we have like our vacancy rate downtown is like 40% now. It's like wow. really, yeah, That's it's crazy. The definition of a depression in property terms, that is. Oh, Adam, it's crazy. The, the property, the guys that own these, these buildings, right? They're all fighting for tenants. Yeah. You know, and so there's this huge competition for tenants. And so how do we get people into our space? And so, man, you want to talk about a mobile workforce? Companies are looking at their leases and they're going, we can move to a better building. Yeah. You know, that's more better for our employees, better for us financially, improves our profit, get our costs down. Why the hell are we staying where we are? And they're telling developers, pound sand, we're we're out of here. We're moving. Well. I've got, I've got a real example of that. Our office in Dubai, we recently moved to a bigger, better office in a better location at 60% of the rent we were paying. Yeah, so <laughs> there you go. How many go. times is that happening? <laughs> there you go. So if you, th- you know, so we should get some property developers on. Anybody that's listening, if you you got some big names, all right, we're, we're looking for somebody who's got, you know, a voice there. Yeah. Um, because that whole area is going to go through some drastic changes. We're seeing it here now, yeah. right? You know, and stranded out. You want to talk about stranded assets? Forty percent vacancy. There are some stranded assets, right? Now, who's holding the papers on this shit, right? And then, yeah. you know, they might they might be blending their profit. Like if you look at their financial statements, right? So you get some of these big developers. They got buildings all over the world, right? Yeah. So okay, maybe on a large scale for some of these companies, Calgary might represent a certain percentage that's you know. Uh, parasitic on their profit line but at a local community they're looking at the numbers and going holy crap yeah like this is a financial disaster right we've got these property that we're holding paper on and we can't put people into them like what oh this is not good so how big is that line between stranded asset that no one wants and something that needs to get knocked down and redeveloped it's a thin line right absolutely yeah Ooh. All right, mate. So I think that was good. I enjoyed that because normally I'm I'm trying to sort of suck out knowledge and information from the people we interview, and it was really interesting to vent our spleens on a few questions. I thought, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And thanks for those questions too, right? Yeah. So big shout out to everyone who sent in questions. Really appreciate it, and really appreciate everyone who listens to us and puts up with us. 
and uh, we hope to add more value and make things bigger and better next year. Absolutely. And, and, and you know what? I'm going to take this time here to say we have started to look at sponsors. We have yes. uh, Blue, Blue Rhythm, right? Yes, Blue Rhythm. Uh, yeah. God bless yeah. them. God bless them, absolutely. And, we, you know, we do this for free. We don't pay ourselves for doing this. We just like doing yeah. this because we like shaking shit up, right? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but we want to do things on a bigger scale. And so if there's any of our uh, you know colleagues out there that uh, would be interested in maybe sponsoring uh, some of uh, these episodes, we would be entertaining that right now. Most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. yeah. Always open. I've never seen a dollar sponsor I didn't like the look of. So come on in. <laughs> All right, my friend. Always okay. a pleasure talking with you. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side, because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.